All right, guys, thank you. Today we are continuing in our sermon series, God's Not Read. And with this sermon series, we are continuing in on stories that we don't often think about or hear about or work through whenever we are learning about the story God has told through history, okay? Now, with this, there are a couple of different things to this current story you guys should know. One, today's sermon was planned, assuming we were going to be dedicating Ayla today. So it's about kids and dedicating them to God or giving them over to God. But because of that, I don't have all of the sermon slides and what I was planning on having, because some of them were things, what, just children just running away? <laughs> just going through, just going through. He's going to make his way forward. Kids, we're talking about them today. It's going to be great. All right. Yeah. Your kid's awesome, just so you know. In case you didn't realize that, he is. All right, and so... We were going to be talking about Ayla's dedication and what it means to dedicate your child to Christ before going into the sermon, so we kind of skipped over some parts with the kid not being dedicated. So a bit of background on this. We within City dedicate children to God. We don't baptize them before they know Christ because we hold that baptism is something that occurs whenever uh, people come to know who Jesus is and accept him as their Lord and Savior, right? So instead of baptizing killed children into the kingdom or into the, the church when they're young, what we do is we dedicate them to God. And this has a couple of different precedents throughout the Old Testament and in the New, actually. Uh, the biggest ones being Hannah, whenever she dedicates her kid to God. Uh, there's also Samson's mom does this. There's also uh, Samuel's mom, which is Hannah, I think. Yeah, right? There's Samuel's mom, which is the one that people most often draw from. Then all the way up to Elizabeth in the New Testament and even some of Mary doing the same thing with Jesus, Right? So there's this whole precedent of people recognizing that children are a gift from God and recognizing that he is the one to whom they belong and he is the one who has full control over who they are and what they do. And that's the pretty and fun part of this concept. We're going to talk about some of the less pretty and fun part concepts that tie into this in the Old Testament today too. We're going to talk about one that pretty much all of us know about and have indeed heard in Sunday school, right? And then we're going to talk about one that we probably kind of skip over a lot. Here's the first one that you probably know about. In Genesis 22, we find the story of Abraham and Isaac. And we find the story of how after God has given Abraham a son, God then demands that son back. Right? And after, the things, after these things, God tested Abraham. Abraham said, Abraham, and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice on, which, on, <laughs> on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Right? And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went with so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place on which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took a knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Again, here I am, just straight up. 
He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went up and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the, called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. <sighs> We're going to actually skip this part. Let's have a quick little talk about this. Story that we've probably heard before. Right? You guys have heard uh, the story of Abraham taking Isaac up on top of a mountaintop, right? Does that, like, we hear it and we learn about it and we come with it. But do you realize just how messed up that concept is a little bit to us today? Imagine, if you will, if you were praying and God called out your name. Micah, Brent, Debbie, Abby, no? Okay. <laughs> She's like, mm, don't have the second part yet. Okay. And you said, yes, here I am. What's up? And he said, I've got an idea for you. Go take your kid, okay? And offer them up to me as a sacrifice. What would your next response be in that? No. You would also probably say things like, maybe the person talking to me isn't God. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm making things up. Maybe Satan is being a really big jerk right now. Like we hear this, we're like, okay, I hear this story. Sure, yeah, Abraham did it. But Abraham did it, right? And God did it. That's the important part to really pick up on here. This was indeed God talking to Abraham, telling him to do this. And we sometimes would like to say things like, oh, sometimes people do things in the Old Testament thinking they're doing what God wanted them to do, and they didn't. Jesus didn't really want him to. God didn't really want him to. The next story we're going to read in just a second, that's the case. But you can't always say that. Sometimes God actually said to do the things that we think is crazy and don't like. Right? Next story real quick. Let me skip ahead. In Judges 11, we have another story that steps into this concept of sacrificing a child. This is one of the judges of Israel. Do you guys know what the judges of Israel are? They're the people who were given to God to lead the people of Israel in the absence of, of ongoing long-term leaders, especially in times of extreme crisis, whenever the people of God had chosen to ignore him for a long time and then needed rescued from something, right? This is one of the judges. The spirit of the Lord was upon Japheth. Japheth. I feel like I'm lisping every time I say his name. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. If you give me these people into my hand in battle, whatever comes out of my doors, I'll give to you. And he struck them from a roar in the neighborhood of Meneth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Keremeth, Keremim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And as, why is it skipping? Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. 
She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I might go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. Weird. We'll talk about that in a second. And so he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow what he had made. And she had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah to Gilead four days in the year. The end. Great Sunday school story, guys, right? Thus says the Lord, go in peace, have a good week. No? Yes? No? Okay. Let's go a little deeper into this, all right? One second here while I get myself pulled up and ready, because I should have done this well beforehand, but stuff occurs in life sometimes. Sometimes you make a vow to God, and sometimes he makes you, no, he doesn't make you do anything, right? So let's just talk about this real quick. Oh my goodness, this dude, okay, loved God, cool, trusted in God, right? And totally said, if you do this, I'll do this. He made a vow. What are we supposed to do, right? Fun story, just real quick out here. This is a really good reason why we should super take Jesus at his word whenever he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Like, don't, don't vow or promise things. Like, just do it. Like, don't swear by God these things. Just, just do what you're going to do, right? Because this dude made a mistake and vowed something he should have never vowed, made a decision he should have never done, and then decided to go ahead and go through with it. I mentioned that part in there real quick about the lamenting her virginity part, which is a weird thing to be in there, right? Like, all right, before you sacrifice, let me just go lament for a while because of the fact that I am still a virgin. And then I'll come back, which, weird chord to strike, though I'll be honest, if I can kick this out here, at one point, whenever I was a new believer, for a very long time, I prayed quite heavily that the rapture would not occur until I had been married for a while. Like, right? It's a lamentable thing. <laughs> what? No, feel free to laugh at me. It's worthwhile. I deserve it. Seriously, just the glasses and the stoic face, and I'm like, you're just trying to act cool now. And it's working. Well done. Anywho, it's a lamentable thing sometimes, all right? Now, it's a fun story. Within this, there's an actual relatively big portion of Jewish history and lore that states that what he did was not sacrifice his daughter. What he did was give her up to God and offered her over to be uh, basically chased for the rest of her life. Uh, and that she, therefore, was never able to bear sons or daughters, could not carry on his line, and he gave up everything afterwards, right? To the point that one of the early orders of nuns that occurred were the nuns in the order of Japheth's daughter. Like, they claim that that was who they took their choice to be vow and to take a vow of chastity from. Worth noting, sounds awesome. I understand why they wrote that into their traditions. Totally not what's being said here. 
totally not. Instead, what's being said is that he said, whatever comes out of the doors of my house, I will give you if you give me the Ammonites. God gave him the Ammonites, and his daughter came out to celebrate whenever he was coming home victorious. She was so happy to see her dad coming back. She was happy and clapping, banging the tambourine, running out to greet him, and she was the first thing out the door that he saw. And he said, why? Why would you do this to me, God? And make me have to sacrifice my only daughter. And then he sacrificed his only daughter. Crazy. You might be thinking, why would God do that to him? Why would God make him do that? And it's worth noting that whenever we have questions of this nature, one good place to look to see if there's any way we can understand the context behind this as to what God is doing or has done or could be doing is whenever Jesus talks in the New Testament. And there's at least one place where Jesus talks about something in the New Testament that very directly applies to this. It is worth noting this as well. Within the Levitical law and within the actual Mosaic law, God straight up says multiple times, I detest human sacrifice. Do not do it. This is what the followers of Moloch do. This is what the followers of Baal do. You are not to do that, right? <laughs> Straight up says, don't do it. Command by God, don't do this thing, okay? So if God commands something and we say or do something dumb that goes against that command, is that a good thing? No. Where do you think Jesus talks about something like this? In the New Testament, he is talking to the Pharisees. They're having an argument with him, largely about the fact that his disciples choose not to wash their hands right before eating. And they're like, why are you doing this? You're breaking the law of man, the law of God. This is what our fathers have done forever. This is our tradition. You should do this. Don't you know you're making yourselves unclean by not? The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, hypocrites? It is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You leave the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother what you would have given, gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions you have handed down, and many such things you do. You see, there was this commandment in the law that said you are to honor your father and mother, and you are to care for them, and you should not uh, ignore them or take away from them or, or do them harm, right? You should not revile your father or mother, and to do so is worthy of death. Which, by the way, sacrificing children to God, worthy of death in the Old Testament, right? But these people have built up this thing where they say, you know what, no. Well, this is supposed to happen in this way. I'm supposed to honor my parents. Instead, I'm going to give this over to God and ignore that other commandment. And they would treat it as this. If you're giving it to God, that must be good and okay to do, right? And I would imagine that if they did that, God would be like, cool, thank you for giving me everything. I appreciate it, right? But no, Jesus himself says that's wrong. You're 
ignoring what I said. You're choosing to do something to honor God that actually dishonors him because you've ignored what he's done. Right? You've ignored what he said. This is what Jephthah did. Jephthah. He ignored the commandment of God. He ignored the heart of God. He ignored what God wanted him to do. Which, by the way, he just completely was dumb. You don't make a promise that you cannot keep because you don't know what it is, right? If I said, Lord, the next thing that catches on fire is in your honor, and as I step out of here, this whole building burns to the ground, probably wasn't something that he actually wanted to happen in that way, right? It wasn't because of him. It was because, you know, the wiring is super old in here. What? Look at your face. You're like, no, it's true. This man chose to try and give honor to God in a way that would have been detestable to God. And he felt bound by his word to do it and did it. There's two things to take here. What would the most godly thing have been for Japheth to do? What would the most godly thing have been? Huh? That's true. First one probably is not do something dumb in the first place, right? Number one is don't offer to sacrifice things if you don't know what that thing is, right? Yeah. Yeah, right? No, my cow's running out to see me. Worth noting, yes, actually. Worth noting, yes, actually. So within that time period, uh, the first floor of a house was generally devoted to where you kept your animals over winter. And the second floor is where people lived. So he was probably expecting to come back home and see one of his, if he had cows, cows run out, if he had sheep, sheep run out, if he had, yeah, straight up was probably expecting that, right? With the caveat, people also lived there, right? <laughs> yeah. It's all, by the way, whenever they say that there was no room in the inn for Jesus, same deal. He was actually in a house. He wasn't able to come upstairs where the family was. He stayed on the first floor with the animals, right? Anywho, yeah, he was expecting something living to come running out that door. It wasn't like, I'm going to throw away the first vase that rolls out that door whenever I get home, Right? He was expecting something alive to come out, and he had no foresight to think that the alive thing might be someone who's excited to see him instead of a random animal walking out the door. Or he was hoping they would be outside already to begin with. Maybe my family would just be out waiting for me before I could text them and tell them I'm on my way home. Right? Whatever. He didn't think. The first thing he probably did wrong was not think and make a promise to God in an unthinking manner. Don't do that. First of all, you don't need to test God by promising big things if he does something good. You don't have to. He'll do what he's going to do. You don't have to say, I will give you $10,000, God, if you make this church grow. Right? If he wants the church to grow, it's going to grow. My $10,000 are the matter. I should use that in a way that glorifies him otherwise, not make it a bet as to whether or not he'll do the thing I want him to do. That was his first mistake, Right? His second mistake was that whenever he noticed that he had made a big mistake, he didn't humble himself, apologize, and then not do the thing that broke God's commandment. He said, well, I gotta. Go and lament your virginity for a while. Right? That's probably going to be a 
things I end up saying to people for a little bit when they're in trouble. <laughs> Go lament your virginity. We'll talk in two months. No? Okay. This man gave up what was likely the most precious thing to him. He had no other children. This was his beloved daughter who loved him completely. And he thought that honoring God was to just basically kill her. And it wasn't honoring. So, in case you're wondering, the takeaway of this sermon is don't sacrifice children. It's a pretty easy one. That's takeaway one. Write that down in case you ever wonder. Don't sacrifice children. But then here's something to consider as well. How easy is it for us to fall into the trap of doing something horrible because we think it'll glorify God? Throughout history, how often has the church done it? The history of the church following about the year 300 becomes a history of the wars the church perpetuated on behalf of God. It's pretty crazy when you go back through and read some of the things that occurred. One of the main battle cries for the Crusades that went through and like straight up took out villages and towns and people was God willed it. God willed it. God didn't will it. People willed it and said they were doing it for his glory. We do similar things today. Similar. <laughs> we do similar things today even. Like seriously, have you ever seen someone who just starts talking about basically huge nationalistic type policies and say God wills for us to win these wars or do these things or God wills for this to happen or that to happen and ignores the plights of people that occur because of these things occurring? God's will is very apparent whenever you read Christ's words in the New Testament. If you really want to know what God's will is, read his words and learn what he says and try and be more like him. And note, he didn't kill anybody in his life that I know of. Like, we don't have a full, complete record of his life, but like, for all the parts we can read about, not one killing. Try not to kill people. That's takeaway two. That's right. There you go. No sacrificing children, try not to kill people. Doesn't glorify Jesus. Very practical sermon today, if I must say so. Right? But here's another point, too. Please, please pay attention to what you are claiming is God's will versus what is your own. Please pay attention. There are things that you and I are going to do in our lives that are our will. Until Jesus returns and makes me perfect, at times I'm going to act out of my own will. There are things you are going to do out of your own will as opposed to out of God's, right? And at times those things might align up very closely with what looks like God's will. But they may not be his, they're just yours. Be very careful whenever you are saying God wants something to happen. Yeah.
God hates death. I don't know quite how all of the metaphysics of it work out. I can't perfectly apply who is and is not in his will to be here or not be here. But I can say that he hates it and is actively defeating it. He beat it on the cross with his resurrection. And whenever he returns, death will not exist, right? Part of the gloriousness of what Christ is doing throughout all of history is he's taking things that are broken and he's fixing them. So to say that that death was his will is to say that God liked that brokenness or God wanted that brokenness to happen, right? He doesn't take pleasure in the brokenness. He laments it as we do, which is why he defeated it in Jesus. Basically, that's the, the thing here. Please, if you are talking to someone who is undergoing extreme suffering or pain or brokenness or hurt, for you to claim God willed it is wrong because that is not yours to claim. Depending on your theology, you may hold to that. And sure, philosophically, that makes sense. But it is not yours to claim. Jake. Amen. And again, we can look to Jesus for this too, right? There's a story that's pretty darn similar to that in Jesus' works in the New Testament too. There's a time whenever Jesus is in one city and one of his followers whom he loves falls deathly ill, Lazarus. And someone comes to Jesus and says, please come quickly. You're the one you love is dying. He needs you. And Jesus' decision was obviously stand up and sprint there right away, right? No, Jesus stayed where he was at for two more days and then started walking that direction. And whenever he got there, uh, Mary and Martha, I think it was Mary first came out, right, Jake? Mary came out first? They came out and confronted him like, where were you? Where were you when he died? Why weren't you here? You could have fixed this. You could have stopped it. And to note, she has a point. He could have. Dude can heal anything without even being there. He didn't even have to be there to heal Lazarus. He could have done it from where he was standing. He did it for the centurion's servant. He did it for other people, right? Where were you? 
Christ didn't dismiss her. Christ didn't tell her she was wrong to feel upset or hurt. Christ didn't tell her she shouldn't be grieving whatsoever. Christ lamented with her. This is where Jesus wept, is said. And it wasn't just like a light sadness. This is Jesus breaking down, crying in anger and sadness at the same time. And he was hurt by it too. And then, in the glorious part, he fixed it. So he went and rose Lazarus from the dead, presaging the resurrection, what he would be doing later, giving a little taste of what's going to happen whenever he returns and whenever he fixes it completely. Whenever we're sitting in the in-between part while we're waiting for that resurrection to happen, we do what Jesus did. We grieve with people. We weep with them. We be with them. We love them. We be angry at death, too, because Jesus was. That makes sense? Fun story. Your question, Anna straight up asked a very similar one this morning. Hi, Anna. I owe you money because I'm mentioning you. Uh, she has this habit of asking deep theological questions whenever she's supposed to be going to sleep. Right? But she straight up walked up, and it's like, we're getting ready to go to bed. She's like, Dad. I'm like, yeah. She's like, Dad, who controls the weather? I'm like, well, Jesus, right? I mean, push comes to shove. That dude's the one who makes wind move, right? Created currents and heat and the way it works and everything. It's like, Okay. Why does he allow tornadoes to happen and let people get hurt by him? <laughs> like, oh. It is by God's grace that we have health. It is by God's grace that we live in a point that is not currently disaster. He is constantly holding back the effects of sin. It's one of the things the Bible says he does. When Anna asked that question, I could go a couple of different ways on it. I could go super conservative and be like, yes, he does everything. He lets some people get hurt because he chooses for that to happen. Or I can go super liberal and be like, God doesn't control everything, right? It was outside of his control. He couldn't do anything about it. That's basically the two directions you can go when that question's asked, right? So I went the third way and went, I don't know. <laughs> I wish I could give you a good answer. I can't. But what I can say is this. We're the church. We're the kingdom of God. We're the body of Christ present on earth, right? And whenever Jesus returned, what's he going to do? And she's like, fix the world. And I'm like, yes, right? And I'm like, if we're his body now, what are we supposed to be doing? Helping fix the world, Right? So we can do that in a multitude of ways. We can fight against death with medicine. We can research and try and do what we can to break some of the bonds death has on us. We won't do it perfectly. Jesus will do it whenever he returns. We can fight, right? 
whenever disaster strikes and we know that God someday will fully fix it, what can we do? Help. So, we can pray for those who are in stricken areas that God would provide them relief. We can go and provide relief, whether it's by sending money or by going ourselves to do building, right? We can do whatever we can to be the hands and feet of Christ now until he returns and is doing it all himself. And she's like, okay, can I go help fix stuff? And I'm like, all right, good. Take it. Let's keep that attitude for like ever, and I'll be happy. Right? Got a little off subject. I'm enjoying it, though. Good conversation. I lost my clicker. There it goes. Back to Abraham then, though, right? So, yeah. All right. Mosaic law, not supposed to sacrifice your kids. What do you do whenever God's the one who says, go sacrifice your kid? Huh? What? You, you okay, that's fine. Yeah, all right, here. All right, he's like, on it. He's just like, <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, but you've got to ask this particular question heavily first, right? Abraham is a unique story in Scripture. The only time whenever God called for someone human to kill their only son. Only time. And he was like, fine. Yes, with even additional caveats too, right? We all look at Genesis and we say, oh, it's the history of everything, right? Starting from the beginning, walking the whole way forward. Do you know how much of Genesis is focused on pre-Abrahamic history? Eleven chapters. Eleven chapters deal with everything that occurred from the beginning of creation all the way up to Abraham existing. Eleven chapters. Do you know how much of Genesis is dealt with Abraham and his family? The rest of it. Like all of it, right? The rest of Genesis is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Then you step into Exodus and you start going to Moses, right? So literally 11 chapters was everything. And if you really think about it, while it is super important, those 11 chapters are hugely important, they are background story to the story God is telling, starting with Abraham. Genesis 1 through 11 is explaining how we got to where we're at with Abraham. And then Abraham is a story of how God's fixing what happened beforehand. It's the beginning of that story. And so at the beginning of this story, we see God pick a person out and say, you, I'm going to bless you. You're not trying to reach for me. You're not trying to do anything great whatsoever. You. I pick you. He's like, who, me? He's like, yeah, you. I will make you the father of many nations. I will give you a land that is your own. Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore, and every nation on earth will be blessed through you. Sweet. Go where I tell you to go. Okay. Don't do dumb stuff while you're doing it. I refuse. He does lots of dumb stuff while he's doing it. And it's God redeeming him over and over again and protecting him and moving him forward over and over again, right? And like five chapters after this, Abraham's like, well, I don't have a kid yet. You said I have a son. And God's like, wait for it. And God covenants with him again. And a couple more chapters later, Abraham's like, where's my kid at? 
was like, wait for it. And Sarah's like, no, here's Hagar. Have a kid. And so Abraham sleeps not with Sarah and has a kid, but sleeps with Sarah's handmaid and has a kid. And God's like, no, wait for it. A couple of chapters later, Abraham and Sarah have a kid. The culmination, columnation, right? Columnation. Culmination, thank you. I'm talking about nations of columns here, no? <laughs> of what God had been doing throughout this point in Abraham's life. And God is like, Abraham, do you trust me? And Abraham's like, you've shown yourself to be trustworthy so far. He's like, good, I told you you'd have a son, right? Yeah, I want you to give that son to me. Go to the mountain I show you. Go to the mountain of God, Carmel. Go up it. Offer your son to me. Fun story. Do you know what actually ended up being on that same mountain? That's where the temple of Solomon ended up getting built. Same mountain. Where God did not demand that people sacrifice their kids, but demand that they offer animals and sacrifice on their behalves, right? Everyone offers a first fruit sacrifice for the first of your children. You don't offer your child, you offer an animal sacrifice, right? This is where that happened at. This is where Jesus cleansed the temple and said, the things that you're doing are not of God. This is where Jesus preached at. This is where the church was proclaiming Christ later. It started here. started here. In the book of Hebrews, we read this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as, a for, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Jacob and Isaac, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she was considered, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars in heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Skip forward just a little bit. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is saying that Abraham, in making the sacrifice, was recognizing the fact that God was powerful enough to fix death. Because even if he gave Isaac up to death, God could bring him back. Now that's crazy, right? Where have we heard a story like that? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Abraham's test was to demonstrate God and his power to overcome death. And it was a presage. It pointed forward to the fact that God would save the world by offering his own son on behalf of it. 
God said to Abraham, do you love me or your son more? And Abraham said, okay, you. He's like, you don't have to. I got this. And then God said to himself, do I love the son or you more? And the answer was still, I don't have to choose. He's got this. And he offered the son for you. And the son rose, defeating death, overcoming it. Because he knew that that's what he could do. When we offer our kids to God, we are doing no more than what God did for us. When we, I've lost the word, dedicate our children to God and say they are yours and not ours. That is what he said to us. The father said, my son is not just for me. He is for you. We recognize the goodness of who Jesus is. We can see the goodness of God in the story of Isaac and the fact that God gave over someone else, a ram, so that Isaac didn't have to be sacrificed. We can see the goodness of God in the fact that he never required his people ever to offer sacrifices of their children, which all the other pagan gods in the area did in very nasty ways. Very, very nasty ways. We can see the goodness of God in the fact that he abhors whenever people claim to follow him and then do things that go against his will, like Japheth did. And we can see the goodness of God in what he has done through Jesus and offering him up that we might have life. So what's your takeaway on this last part? All right, so we've got what so far? Don't sacrifice kids, right? Don't kill other people. And here's the big one. Know that Jesus loves you so much that he offered himself for you, that he dedicated himself to you when he didn't have to. He didn't need to take care of this world. He could make another one if he wanted to. He could just wipe it away and start all over. He has that power. But instead he decided to save us through his life, through his death. If that's what he's willing to give to you, what are you willing to give to him? Not sacrifice on behalf of him or in his name. What are you willing to say belongs to him? The answer to that is everything, right? What do you own that is more precious than what he has already offered for you? Nothing. So give it to him. Does that make sense? That's our sermon for today. We're going to take a moment, we're going to pray, we're going to have Jake come up, and we're going to remember the sacrifice Christ made on our behalf through communion. So let's take a moment and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. First of all, we thank you for the fact that you have had grace on us and, on us and not allowing us or not even requiring us or not wanting us to into testing the concept of us having to sacrifice our children. Thank you. I appreciate that. I would never want to do it. Thank you so much for offering your son up for us. We praise you for the fact that you overcame death through his death and you have broken it with his life. We praise you for the fact that you are offering us a new life and give us the chance to partake in that new life with you. I pray that as we go throughout this week, may we be your hands and feet in this world. May we see this world come closer and closer to the perfection that you are going to make it in through the work that you do through us, by us. And Lord, may we glorify you 
in every moment of it. Father, be glorified in our lives. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm done. I can steal something. Hold on a second. You can see me. We're good. So, uh, that's actually one of my, I don't want to say favorite passages, because it's not a very nice, pleasant, yeah, uh, not a very uh, pleasant passage, but something I really, and I've been thinking about this a lot throughout the week, past actually three weeks, uh, and it ties into this really well, but when you really look at Jephthah and stuff like that, and you listen to this story being told, how many times does he go to God and ask God, hey, is this your will? Is this what you desire for me to do? Exactly. Zero times. And so, like, that's, that's one of those things to consider, is oftentimes you may be compelled, I mean, Yes, do I think it was wrong that he sacrificed his daughter? Absolutely, but like you could still hold on to he had a tenacity to uphold what he thought was right, but he didn't have the humility to ask himself if maybe what he thought, even his view of God, could be wrong. And you can look through, and we can do that today. You can look throughout scripture, and don't look for scripture to affirm your belief. Look for scripture to go against it, because if it goes against it, great, now you know it's wrong, but if it also affirms by you looking to what goes against it, then you know you're going in the right direction. But it applies to us even today in a small thing, as well to big things as well. I mean, oftentimes you hear, how often do you hear, oh, because people were gay, that's why this uh, you know, state or city was wiped out, or because we have sin in the world, or because blah, 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 blah. You know, like, we use that today still for hate, and that's not God. That's not his will. That's not who he is. That's not who he professes himself to be. And so what I wanted to talk about today during communion is this concept of consumerism. And I've really been thinking about this a lot, but so much of our culture is based on what we consume. It's about what we get, what we gain, even church services. Why only go to this service if they do a modern worship set? I only go to this service if their sermon series has three points. I only go to this service if, you know, they have, a, they have diversity. I only go to this service if they have so many people in it. I only go to this service if the building looks a certain way or has air conditioning. We make all these excuses and demand that the church is how we can consume it, as opposed to what does Christ do and what does God represent? He relinquishes. He recognizes what he has and says, this is what I, he's not focused on what he can gain. He's not focused on what he wants to have. He's focused on reflecting on what he does have and out of what he has, how he can give it, how he can relinquish it. And so this is what I want us to think on during communion. The same thing with, um, with this sermon that we just heard as well as that like Jephthah was looking on what he could relinquish, but he allowed that idea. And so, cause sometimes we can get into that. We get so obsessed with living a certain way that that idea uh, or an aspect of God becomes our God. We still don't even surrender that over to God himself. So there's two things I want you to do. So one, consider what you have, not what you want, not what you plan for, but what you have currently. How can you relinquish that? How can you use that to serve those around you? And secondly, when you come to that conclusion, ask yourself and pursue God and say, is this his will? You know, the thing that you can give, the thing you can pour out on other people, is this his will? And talk amongst each other. Go to God about it. Go to scripture about it and say, does this affirm this? Or maybe you could be corrected. Because regardless of all these things, regardless of money, material things, if it's not God's will to do it, it's not going to happen. It's not going to work. He doesn't need us. We are blessed, as Mike was saying. We are blessed to be in his mercy. The fact that we can have hope to even be healed is from his mercy. And if you aren't approaching God daily saying you need mercy, well, then there's a problem with your theology and there's a problem with you and there's a problem with me. We are blessed to be in a place to have hope. We are blessed to be in a place to even say there is a future, that things can be healed, that we can be a part of the world, and we are graced to be the arms and the legs and the body of Christ. So don't take it lightly when you participate in communion. Recognize that Christ broke himself, you know, and poured himself out for us on, uh, you know, for his behalf, to give glory, and for us. But in the same sense, like, recognize what it means to be that body, what it really looks like. 
Maybe all you are is a hand, but how are you using that? How are you turning to somebody else that's an arm or a foot and saying, hey, I can't do this, but maybe you can. Push each other, encourage each other, and be the body. So when you're ready, feel free to come up to participate in communion.